Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 37 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And that, for those of you guys who don't know, movie aficionados out there, that is the main theme from Oliver Stone's movie World Trade Center, which one of the few theatrical films about 9-11 that has been made, and I do think it is a pretty fitting tribute to the story of 9-11 that, of course, it's obvious enough why we are coming in with that and not our usual uh, synthwave vaporwave theme we usually like. Because, of course, as of the recording of this episode, this is on Thursday, the 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001 is just 48 hours away from now. And what else could we open with? What else could we talk about besides this? Of course, it's fitting enough to pay tribute and do the usual the usual ritual as should be done i think especially since this is our first episode of the right take on a 9-11 anniversary we started back in january and it is already september now the ritual of course being to talk about where we were on the day that it happened uh, we are both millennials jacob and i uh i am 27 jacob is 29 so jacob you probably have slightly better memories of what happened that day so i'll go ahead and go first it is i do have faint memories of that day i was seven years old um and uh, again some of the gaps here are filled in by my mom telling me the details of the story at many years after the fact that of course i grew up in california we were on the west coast right so we're three hours behind so by the time we woke up for school both of the towers had already fallen because they fell at like i think 10 a.m eastern time or something like that and my mom says me and my older sister were watching cartoons on TV in the morning as we're getting ready, having breakfast and getting ready for school. And mom says she was brushing my sister's hair as we're sitting in front of the TV watching cartoons. And the phone rang. And this is back when we had a landline in our house. We don't have a landline phone anymore. We all have cell phones now. But the landline rang and my dad picked it up. And it was his dad, my grandfather, who was on the other end and just immediately said, turn on the news right now. Just turn on the news, any channel, turn on the news right now. So, of course, Dad turned on the news, and again, we were watching replay footage because the towers had already fallen by that point, but we were watching replay footage of one of the towers burning, and I remember just seeing it was a faraway view, so it just looked like nothing more than this tiny little black dot just slowly moving through the air, moving across the screen, and then flying into the second tower. And I turned to my mom, and again, according to her, I asked, I asked, Mom, is this a movie? And of course, we all we all wish it was just a movie that that would be quite a movie. But unfortunately, it was real life. So I didn't understand it at the time. But as the years went on, I grew to understand it more and more. Of course, one of my uh, closest childhood friends, uh, her father actually did serve in the Navy and was deployed to Iraq. And I was aware of the wars. I was aware I was aware of war as a general concept. I didn't realize it was two wars. I didn't know Afghanistan from Iraq. I just knew we were at war pretty much ever since then because we had to go get the bad guys, right? And as a little kid going into like elementary and middle school, I would frequently ask my mom, are we still at war? You know, is the war still going on? Because growing up learning about history, you learn, okay, wars may last between two or four years, give or take. You know, both world wars, at least for U.S. involvement, was only about four years apiece. And it's... So the idea of a war going on for this long, as long as Vietnam, of course, our previous longest war, it was just unheard of. And I knew how abnormal it was. And then for it to finally happen, again, we talked about Afghanistan and the withdrawal that obviously took place, the botched withdrawal. September the 1st, or I guess technically August 31st, I guess the Pentagon declared the war officially over on August 30th of this year. It was really weird for me to realize August 31st was the first day I in my life 
that I can recall when I could say my nation was not at war anymore. And to look back on the reason we went to war and then to contrast that with how disastrously the war ended. And as I asked in the Afghanistan episode, I said, you know, what was the point? What, what did we achieve? Was it for anything? Was it for nothing? I mean, yes, we killed bin Laden 10 years later. Al-Qaeda itself has been largely decimated. Their central structure has been smashed. Um, of course, there are other terror groups out there. There always will be. But you could argue we kind of did accomplish our goals in one way or another. But at what cost? You know, at what cost? This prolonged war that just weakened American confidence at home, killed over 2,000 troops, trillions of dollars, 20 years, a generation. They say a generation is roughly 20 years culminating in a terror attack, a suicide bombing in Kabul near the airport that killed over 200 people, including 13 Marines, some of whom, this was pointed out to me, you were seeing, I'm sure, Jacob, you were seeing on social media the tributes to the 13 fallen Marines at like bars and restaurants all around the country. Tables were being reserved with 13 glasses of beer saying reserved for the, the fallen Marines. And I saw, and of course, that's a very nice touching tribute. It was spontaneously happening all over the country. But a friend pointed out that someone, some of these drinks should not be alcohol. They should be soda because some of those Marines were not even old enough to drink. Several of them were about 20 years old. And again, babies, not, not even toddlers, infants when 9-11 happened, if they were even alive when 9-11 happened. And they died in the final days of a war that they didn't understand. They, I mean, sure, they understood it, but they were not alive for the genesis of that war. And that is just – it's a very fitting story to tell, I think, to culminate, to summarize just what a tragedy this whole thing is. Well, from- imagine someone born in 1941 dying in Japan. Yeah, that would that would be that's that's such a foreign concept to us. The idea that World War Two could have continued all the way until 1961. So, Jacob, I, I mean, I've told my story and I give my thoughts. So, what about you? You you were a little older than I am. What what do you remember about that day 20 years ago? Yeah, I was homeschooling. It was, uh, of course, it was uh, Central Central Standard Time, so we're behind an hour behind New York. And my mom had gone to Walmart and she got back and she said, "Turn on the TV." We turned on the TV, and it was, of course, the, both tower, the second tower had just fallen. And while she was at Walmart, she saw all the televisions in the store were all showing the rubble from the first tower. And she didn't have any idea what was going on. She was wondering, well, was there an explosion somewhere? What's going on? And she asked somebody, and they said, I think there was uh, something. There was an explosion in New York City or whatever. Uh, it's all over the news. And then, then she, we came home. Someone called her on the way home and let her know what had happened. But it was uh, it was a pretty traumatic experience, even as uh, at at that age, because uh, I remember you know school was over for the day. We didn't have any appetite to do school that day or the next day, and um, we stayed up till about two a.m. just watching. I mean, as as kids, just watching. We were just glued to the TV, watching the the documentary of each. Because of course uh, there were just three. We we got three news channels. We got three channels. Period. CBS, NBC, and ABC. And of course the news crews from all three were. At the site, they were interviewing survivors. They were interviewing firefighters. So it was, uh, it was, it was pretty. It was pretty interesting. It was almost like you got the, got the feeling that the world as you know it is coming to an end. And it's just like you don't really know what to do other than just watch it happen. It was, it was kind of a surreal experience. Yeah, just imagine. Certainly at the time when, of course, initially people may think, "Oh, the first plane, okay, might have been an accident." Then, of course, the moment that second plane comes flying in, even before it hits. Just the image of this giant plane slowly coming towards the tower, you, you know, in that moment. And then at that point, how many more planes are there? Are there going to be 10 more planes? Is Nobody knew. And s- some of the earliest stage planning of 9-11, actually, they did 
originally aim for as many as 10 planes. They were going to hit targets in California. They were going to go all over the country, and they could have done it. But ultimately, four planes that targeted the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the fourth plane that never did hit its target was most likely going for the U.S. Capitol. Um, and, and my grandfather tells me, you know, I, I talk history with my grandfather all the time because, you know, what, what to me is history are memories to him. And I ask him about, I ask him about Pearl Harbor, World War II, and, you know, the 60s, the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination, all these things, of course, I never lived through, but he did. And he tells me, you know, well, the first big historical event you witnessed in your generation was 9-11. And I'm like, that's right. Yeah, it's, that's, that certainly is, is a big one. That's a history-defining moment that really did bring the world to, to a stop for a short while. And I remember, and I've mentioned this, I think I mentioned this a little bit in the past or hinted at it, growing up and getting older and older and moving further away from 9-11. I remember when I was in college, it was the year, I think, 2014 or 2015, when I read an article saying that, uh, high school freshmen, because freshmen in high school are usually like 13, 14 years old, something like that. This is the first academic year in America where high school freshmen will learn about 9-11 as a historical event that happened before they were born. And I saw that headline. I'm just like, oh, God, that is that is truly something to realize. It's already it has already become history that fast in that sense. It is something that, again, service members who didn't even weren't alive when 9-11 happened. And it's been tough for me because obviously we fought two wars 20 years over this and shed a lot of blood sweat and tears and spend american treasure on trying to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen ever again and kill terrorists because that's obviously a good thing to do but coming to the realization that zoomers certainly and any future generations after zoomers they won't look back on 9-11 the same way you and i do they won't remember it the way those of us who are alive for it will remember it and that's not you can't blame them for that. If they weren't alive for it, why should they? Any more than why should you and I care about Pearl Harbor? You know, more so than just as much as those who were alive when it happened. That's just the passage of the sands of time. I think it is certainly important that we never forget 9-11, but that we don't, we we honor those who died that day without letting the lessons of 2001 continue to try to dictate what we should do in 2021 because times have changed and the enemy has changed. And simply continuing to try to hammer away the problem like George Bush would have in 2003 is no more the answer than it would be trying to continue hammer away at Japan after what happened in 1941. Well, that ties in nicely to our next two topics, uh, the Taliban and immigration, two issues that uh, pretty much uh, were that contributed to 9-11, that contributed to that terrorist attack. First of all, let's, uh, let's think about where we're at with the Taliban right now. And um, one of the first things that they're doing is cleaning up the American graffiti that we left behind. What? How dare they? How dare they defile such a great American movie? American Graffiti is a great movie. We need to go back. We need to go invade <laughs> Afghanistan again. How dare they disrespect such a classic? Well, the unfortunately, the kind of graffiti they're cleaning up isn't the kind that 80s Gen Xers would particularly appreciate. They have painted over the George Floyd mural that a bunch of woke Afghans decided to paint in their country while we were occupying it. Wait, so this oh, is from the oh, national file. So they so they didn't wait for a lightning strike from God Himself to take care of the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where was that at? Was that a that Dake, was that was in Dake, Ohio. Ohio? Yeah, I knew it was somewhere <laughs> in Ohio. Yeah, they should have just waited around. God would have taken care of it. So this is from the national file. The Taliban have started to paint over street art in Kabul while replacing it with victory slogans and Taliban flags. One of the murals uh, murals that was painted over was one that depicted George Floyd with "I can't breathe" written below. The Floyd mural was recently whitewashed and replaced with Taliban approved text based. <laughs> According to the Guardian, the Floyd mural was painted by the Art Lords group, a group called a group of Afghans called the Art Lords. 
The group painted several murals in Afghanistan depicting events such as the Taliban-Afghan government peace talks, the drowning of Afghan refugees in Iran, and the killing of Jap- um, Japanese aid worker Tetsu Nakamura. Now, the drowning of Afghan refugees in Iran, that was uh, they painted that because they were trying to copy black leftists in America. These were a group of Afghans that were allegedly fired on in a car by Iranian police. I don't know if they were running away from the police or what the deal was, but they ended up drowning. And so these artists in Afghanistan, of course, this is what happens when you colonize a country. The colonists, who are the elites in that country, they end up trying to copy everything that the colonizing country does. So this group of artists in Afghanistan, they see that the country that colonized them is going berserk over this drug addict who got killed incidentally by a police officer kneeling on his neck, and they see all these murals getting painted of this guy. And so they're like, hey, well, we had these Afghan refugees in Iran who drowned, allegedly fired on by police. Iran denied it. And they're like, okay, well, let's do the same thing here. We'll draw murals and we'll treat them as saints here because they were persecuted as minorities in the country that they fled to. The mural of Nakamura has also been painted over by the Taliban. All the murals are an extension of me, the extension of art lords and the extension of the artists who worked with them. Art lords founder Omaid Sharif, Sharifi told The Guardian. The Floyd mural was painted near Kabul's heavily fortified green zone in June 2020. Art Lord's project manager Omar Ghani said the mural was painted to, quote, condemn global racism and to connect George Floyd's story with Afghan migrants. Oh, racism. Uh, he said he said racism is all over the world and we need to denounce it. I'm sure racism is the number one issue affecting Afghans right Afghans right now. Oh, even during the, the, they, cr- the crime rate is definitely at the top of their list of priorities. Right yeah, now. they can't even afford they barely afford to put food on the table and they're concerned about global racism. Just just ridiculous. George Floyd can he says George Floyd can be a symbol for us too. No, this was what an Afghan taxi driver said shortly after the mural was painted. He says George Floyd can be a symbol for us too. Of course, George Floyd can be a symbol for everybody. Kind of like Martin Luther King became a symbol for everybody. If you're in Pakistan and you're uh, let's say you're a Pakistani minority in India, you know, Martin Luther King can be a can be a symbol for you. In Eastern Europe, they're under communism. They had murals and statues of Martin Luther King because they saw him as a leftist icon. It's the same thing with George Floyd. They're trying to they're basically trying to make George Floyd the new Martin Luther King. Yeah. Well, especially because George Floyd has been turned into such a blank slate because he has been he he himself has been completely whitewashed and, you know, absolved of all his crimes, like pointing a loaded gun at a pregnant woman and try and robbing her. Like they've turned him into a complete martyr mm-hmm. that ignores the reality of his life. This taxi driver said if someone does something bad, everyone should stand up and show that it's wrong. So in Afghanistan, so this is what we're exporting to Afghanistan. You've got this country that's still in the seventh century in many in many aspects. We go over there and we're trying to establish democracy and introduce the rule of law, introduce self-government. Democracy, quote unquote. And all we're doing is exporting our garbage to their streets. We're introdu- all we're doing is exporting our American graffiti to their streets. And so, uh, yeah, the Taliban, I, I, this is kind of a... Kind of a white pill. The Taliban is cleaning up Amer- cleaning up Afghanistan streets of our garbage that we left behind. But this is here's the thing: whenever you're, if your country has gone wholly degenerate, like the United States has, if you try to invade another country and you try to set up a government, that government and the culture that you export is just going to be a mirror. It's going to be a really fake image of your culture. It's kind of like you got real cheese, you got synthetic cheese. Okay, whatever. If you're, we're the real cheese, will we go occupy another country as imperialists? They're just going to set up a synthetic cheese. If our real cheese is moldy, they're just going to set up a really bad version of synthetic moldy cheese. And so, uh, yeah, this is kind of when I saw that the Taliban painted over the George Floyd mural, I'm like, 
why do why do we have a George Floyd mural in Afghanistan? Like that's but uh, but yeah, this makes sense. I thought at first that when I first saw the story, I thought that maybe America's servicemen had painted this on their streets, which would have been even more insidious. But now that I see that it's a group of Afghans who are trying to copy street artists in America who paint things for their social causes, then it makes a lot more sense. It's also just further reflective of how this social justice far left garbage happening in America is going to be used by our enemies abroad against us, whether it's this, you know, them copying our tactics or if it's the Chinese delegation at the uh, the Alaska summit with Blinken literally telling him, oh, your country is full of systemic racism. Why should we take you seriously and listen to you as a negotiating partner? They're throwing BLM talking points right back at the American delegation. And what's Blinken going to say? What 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 could he possibly say when his boss is one of the chief you know, promoters of this kind of rhetoric? Yeah, when you denigrate your own country, how are you supposed to project power abroad and be a beacon or a light of, you know, be be a hope to the rest of the country when you're basically saying we're full of, we have, we are a systemically racist country, we've got a bunch of problems, but we want to help you and dictate to you how to run your country. I mean, just imagine you've got this occupying country that's supposed to be bringing freedom and democracy to your country, and an Afghan walks by and they see this picture. Well, who is he? Oh, he's someone who was oppressed in America. Well, wait a minute. Press. I thought America was coming over here to end oppression in our country. They, <laughs> they have oppression in their country? Well, who do they think they are to tell us to end the oppression of women in this country if they can't even treat their minorities right? And this is this is the image that we project abroad. So Again, this is, as you said, this is the product of when we export our ideology and not like Madisonian democracy ideology, but social justice. When, when you see American embassies flying BLM flags and the gay flags and the uh, progress flag, I guess, that hideous triangle flag. Like, this is the result. They're inevitably, especially these countries, like, you can guarantee if the Taliban got their hands on one of those ugly progress flags, they would have a fun time just destroying that flag in an extravagant fashion. But as a cherry on top, if our total humiliation in Afghanistan was not complete, guess what day the Taliban plans to have their the inauguration of their transition government? The same date that Biden originally proposed for his extension of the withdrawal, which also happens to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11, right? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what, what better way? Because they they've already been having mock funerals of the American empire. They, they've got caskets draped in an American flag. and they're British flags, through. all the allied flags. No, yeah. just the American flag because we're the ones who spearheaded the invasion. All the rest of them, they're, trying to, they're actually reaching out to Germany and a lot of other countries trying to establish relations with them, establish alliances with them, saying, telling them, hey, we forgive you. We understand you were just following America's coattails. <laughs> America is the country that spearheaded the invasion. So they're having these mock funerals of the American empire with caskets draped in the American flag and thousands of people cheering and everything. And so what better way to just finalize the absolute humiliation of the American empire than to have their inauguration on September 11th, the same government that we went and kicked out after 9-11 and, and retaliation for 9-11 is now going to be inaugurated on the 20th anniversary of that tragedy. So let's let's think back a little bit. Uh, I understand I... the Taliban did not uh, did not carry out 9/11, but let's think back to Pearl Harbor, which was yeah. the second greatest tragedy, a, a surprise attack in American history. Let's imagine for a second if on December 7th, 1961, the Emperor of Japan was reinstated <laughs> after after kicking the America after kicking America out and forcing America to sign a treaty of withdrawal, essentially a, a surrender treaty, the emperor of Japan was reinstated to million to throngs of millions of cheering Japanese. 
this is essentially what's going on right here. I mean, that, exactly. And this is yeah. Brookings Institute did a good article on America's decline since 9/11, and they compared it to the way that our immune system reacts, or some people's immune system reacts to coronavirus. That's why coronavirus has been so effective at killing so many people. It's because people's immune system uh, just jumps into overdrive, and their immune system ends up killing them and uh, killing them. And th- they pointed that out to they compared that to our response to 9/11. When you, look, when you look at the Patriot Act, when you look at rendition, when you look at the Guantanamo Bay, when you look at everything that we've done since then, and whenever our defensive system essentially went into overdrive, this has perpetuated the decline of America. As you look at where we were in uh, 2001, there was no superpower in the world. Well, we were the only superpower. There was no country in the world that even came close to our military might, to our economic might. We were, I mean, just they pointed out in that article how George Bush had an approval rating of 89% after mm-hmm. the Gulf War. You can't get that anymore. No, and you can't. It's, it's impossible. impossible. Because, it's literally impossible. And be, a part of that decline has been America moving off into separate factions. So a situation – so even if we were attacked on 9-11, like if we had a similar attack again, you wouldn't see this level of unity. And this is what's this is what has happened since 9-11 as – because you had a right-wing government in George W. Bush spearheading the Iraq war. And so that gave the left the ammunition they need to rally popular opposition to that right-wing government, which gave those in the media who opposed – European colonialism who opposed the existence of the United States, that just gave them free reign to become – they became the moral side of the story against the Iraq war. So people, they saw two they saw two sides of the coin. You could either support Iraq and be on the right or you could oppose Iraq and be on the left. So they jumped onto team left, onto team Democrat. Right, and the neocons certainly didn't help either with you know pushing the war so hard that if you dare to question the war, they would say, oh, oh, you must hate the troops, you must hate the military if you're against the troops, and they helped push people out who otherwise might be kind of indifferent or maybe on their side because it became very much a right versus left issue. So the second issue that ties very nicely into 9/11, besides the Taliban, is immigration, because. If it, we, we didn't have such lax immigration laws, it's very possible that 9-11 would have never happened. Some of these hijackers had extended – had overstayed their visas, mm-hmm. and they hadn't been deported. They hadn't been – And they came in legally. Yeah, they, they came, came in legally, quote-unquote. And they were trained at our flight schools. You know, we, we trained them at our flight schools. We allowed them to come into the country. Many of them were on student visas. And this is the, this is the situation that you create when you put diversity on a pedestal. When you're not interested in protecting the core American nation, if you don't see yourself as a nation state and you just see yourself as an economic zone that anyone in the world can come to America and succeed. And this is this is what Joe Biden said whenever he was asked, how do you, how would you describe America in one word? He said opportunity, because that's how the left has seen the United States since going back to the 1960s when John F. Kennedy first said that we are a nation of immigrants this was the, what the new left in the 1950s wanted to try to push, the idea that anybody anywhere in the world can come to the United States and succeed, that we're, basic, we're not a nation of people. We're a nation based on meritocracy. We're not a nation with actual people, with an ethnicity, with a native land. We're just a meritocracy. Anyone in the world can come here if they work hard, if they study hard, if they do what they need to do, if they succeed, if they have what it takes, they can rise to the top. Everyone else can just kind of get left behind. And the New York Times is rec- starting to recognize that the result of this ideology is a shift to the right. This is what we saw with Donald Trump. The reason exactly. why Donald build Trump build the wall, yeah, to build the wall, uh, stand really at the at the core of that, like at the grassroots uh, at the grassroots level. Even if your average Republican voter couldn't enunciate it. They wanted the immigration to stop. They wanted the legal mm-hmm. immigration to stop, too. It wasn't just about stopping people who were border hopping. It was about stopping people who were overstaying their visas. 
It was about cutting the number of those visas. It was about stopping so many foreigners from coming into their country. So that we wouldn't have this rise of cheap labor that drives wages down and ultimately boxes Americans out of jobs they otherwise would get in a heartbeat. I remember at uh, Wawa in D.C., I was uh, there was this guy who came in who was um, – look, he looked homeless, and he was uh, complaining to the cashier that there's uh, there's he's looking for work and he can't find work. He's like, well, all these – all these Mexicans and Guatemalans, they're working. I guarantee you, if you went on a job site and checked their uh, legal status, every single one of them would be here illegally. It was just, he was obviously very frustrated that he can't find work. He's got to live on the streets. Well, that's actually probably not true. If you went and checked the immigration status of most of most the average foreigner on a job site, they're here legally. They came right. into the country legally. But the popular conception of Americans going back to the early 2000s was because we had such a surge of illegal immigration from Mexico in the first decade of the century was that every foreigner here who's working a menial job, whether it's construction, whether it's fast food, is here illegally and they're being paid under the table. So – which is it may technically be in, incorrect, but I think it is worth it to view them all with that equal level of stigma as if they were here illegally, because we ultimately should view legal immigration as harshly as we view illegal immigration. Not just because, of course, certainly they produce very different problems. Legal immigration does bring about the lower wages because of the cheap labor that American citizens can't compete with, whereas the illegal immigration is primarily bringing you know, the, the human trafficking, the drugs, contributing to opioid crisis. So they produce two very different problems, different sets of problems that ultimately do lead to the same result, which is the absolute decimation of the American working class, the middle class, the white working class. That was once the backbone of this country. But speaking of people who are just kind of confused about who's legal and illegal, the border surge at the from Central America, which has resulted in over a million people, possibly as many as two million people coming into the country just since Biden got inaugurated. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more than that, to be honest. Because they've, yeah, they've, it's, it has to be more than that. They've, they've apprehended, I think, about a million, 1.2 million people since mm -hmm. the, since Biden was inaugurated. So it's probably been three million since then, which is more people than we typically have in a, which is far more. It's about double what we have in a typical year through legal immigration. The problem with that from the liberals' perspective, and again, going back to what I was talking about, how the, the end result of this ideology that we are a nation of immigrants, that anybody can come here and succeed. The end result of that is a country that of native people who move to the right. And this scares the crap out of liberals because they understand they're starting to see that every migrant that comes across that border is another native-born American who moves to the right. Mm -hmm. Each migrant is moving that Overton window further and further to the right. And they were able to kind of, uh, as Trump stopped the flow of legal immigration, they were able to move that window a little bit to the left through a massive uh, through a massive propaganda campaign by making the universities. Trump look heart heartless, racist, like all these poor, starving Nicaraguans who just want to, you know, feed their kids or whatever. Like, yeah, they were able to they were able to insert a level of sympathy, and they were also able to try to reconvince a lot of Americans that we're a nation of immigrants through massive propaganda campaigns. This this is through things like Lin Manuel Miranda's propaganda. This is through through, you know, mm -hmm. through through art, every form of art, through academia. Well, the New York Times, like Politico, anytime that the Democrats are in trouble, you can always count the New York Times and Politico to sound the warning bell. This is by Natalie Kitrofe. As migrants surge toward border, court hands Biden a lifeline. Remember, we talked about a couple episodes ago the Supreme Court decision yes. that reinstated Trump's Remain in Mexico policy. We One of the most su successful uh, things that Trump did on immigration. Yes, yes, yeah, definitely. That, I mean, that's that is what stopped the flow of these uh, migrant caravans. But when these migrant caravans started coming through, thanks to our NGOs in this country, who were supporting and sponsoring them, offering them free legal aid, 
they start after Trump implemented that uh, Remain in Mexico policy. They didn't go back to their home co- uh, countries as was expected and hoped. We were hoping that okay, if you force them to wait in Mexico for nine months to fifteen months, they're going to eventually get tired and they're just going to say, you know what, I don't want to live in these squalid conditions. I'm just going to go back. It was life was better in Guatemala. Don't give up and go back home. But because all of these NGOs were informing them that there could be a presidential transition in 2020. They just needed to hold out hope that in 2020 there will be a new administration elected and they will be allowed to come into the country. And that's why you see illegals storming the border wearing Biden campaign T-shirts. Yeah, exactly, because they were led to believe that if they just waited on the other side of the border in those squalid conditions in Mexico, Trump would be out of office by 2021 and then they would be allowed into the country. And so as soon as Biden was elected, this is the message that Biden conveyed as he was condemning Trump's immigration measures. He was condemning Trump as being a racist, as being cruel, as being mean. Yeah, this was the messaging that the Democratic Party conveyed. And one of the first things that Biden signed was the was the repeal of that Remain in Mexico policy. So Kitro, the point that Kitroff makes is that this is kind of a lifeline to Biden that the Supreme Court ruled this way because Biden was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he started re-implementing Trump's policies and forced these migrants to wait in Mexico, that would anger his progressive base that wants to see more migrants come here so we can make the native-born population diminish. Mm-hmm. If he continued to allow these migrants to come in, because there's been virtually no deportation since Biden became president. It's just a consistent flow. Like You see the videos on Fox like every other day. Migrants just pouring over the border and being helped up by Border Patrol agents. Yeah, if he, if he continued to allow that to happen, if he allowed these people to come in, he understood that the optics of this was terrible. So there's no. So Fox News desperately needed viewers after Trump lost the election. And so the, in order to – after they failed to cover the election correctly, I should say. And so there's no better way to raise their viewer numbers than to show a bunch of overweight migrants coming across the – wading across the Rio Grande River on, the way, on their way to Americans' communities to take their jobs. And in addition to that, many of these migrants, they're not – even taking into account that they could have coronavirus. I mean, they're going into restaurants like in Texas. They're just going into restaurants and coughing all over the place, spreading coronavirus. They get tested, and every single one of them have COVID. And they're not getting treated for it. That They just get tested. They get positive tests, and the officials just let them go. And they hand them over to charities that rent out entire hotels. entire hotels. Just for... Unvaxed just for COVID positive illegals, <laughs> specifically for COVID positive illegals. So this is this is kryptonite for the Democrats, because the thing is, the Democrats on at a philosophical level, because their base is college educated, lives in nice gated communities, has this ideal America whereby anyone in the world can come here and join our global country. They see the United States as a global country with people with roots from all over the world. Oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Indonesia. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from India. Where are you from? I'm from Pakistan. I'm from Israel. I'm from Germany. My, my, my roots yeah. are Irish. You know, we're just all, <laughs> we just got little specks of the entire world all sprinkled into this little uh, big universal globalist multicultural melting pot. It's so easy to view through such a lens, the college-educated multicultural lens, when you live on one of the two coasts and have never been further east than Nevada or further west than Massachusetts. But it's kind of like with them, it's kind of like trying to sell alcohol to drunks. They see <laughs> they see the drunks whenever they first get out and start drinking. They're happy. They're smiling. They don't see the drunk throwing up in the alley. And this is the way it is with immigration. They want to view immigration as a bunch of people who are oppressed in their country, who just all they want, they're just good law-abiding citizens. They just want a better life for their kids. They just want the opportunity to come succeed. They reduce crime in the United States, don't you know? They don't see the other side, which is the drunk thrown up in the alley, 
which is a bunch of extremely poor Central American migrants with virtually zero skills to make it in America, flooding across the border by the millions. Because, number one, they understand that this is eventually going to encroach on their idyllic neighborhoods. I mean, you look around the D.C. area. communities. Yeah, you look around the D.C. area. Tacoma Park was the Berkeley of the East. It's a nice little idyllic Victorian neighborhood. And just north of Tacoma Park, you've got Langley Park, which has been overflooded with with drug and crime, uh, drugs and crime, and illegal immigrants and homeless. And that's already started to bleed into Tacoma Park. Tacoma Park, Maryland, is now like half Section Eight housing, and it's so you've got a bunch of really, really extremely poor migrants with you know gang related cr- crime living literally one block away from your nice idyllic Victorian homes. And so liberals, in the back of their mind, they know that this is eventually going to encroach on their neighborhoods. They can't, ha- they can't hide from this forever. Not everyone who is a liberal has the money to go buy a McMansion and live behind a gated wall. They also know that this is going to radicalize the American working class because these people are coming here and they're filling jobs that low-skilled American workers desperately need. And low-skilled American workers cannot compete with these people because these people are willing to work for next to nothing. You know, one of the one of the arguments that's so infuriating with conservatives is they'll argue that the reason why unemployment is high is because people just don't want to work. And I saw um, this was uh, Ted Cruz. Actually, he tweeted out in relation to he, uh, retweeted an ABC article that argued that now that unemployment benefits are ending, what are Americans going to do? And he said, uh, get a job, you know. Like there, there are 9 million unemployed Americans and 10 million job openings. Yeah, yeah just like that. really, really cute response. You know, really cute response. So someone, uh, people are arguing, well, you know, we can't find work. You know, what, do you, what do you mean just go get a job? Someone put in there, I run a septic tank uh, cleaning business and I'm hiring. I offer no benefits for the first year, but I offer competitive wages. And, competitive, uh, wages, competitive wages. He doesn't unquote. say. People are asking, "What do you start?" He said, "Oh, it's competitive." He wouldn't say what he starts his workers at, and he already said, "After a year, you might could get benefits." So I'm going to go work for you for a year with no health insurance. You might get, and benefits. I might get benefits after a year. Oh. And you're not telling me what I'm going to make. And oh, and also he said, "You've got to purchase your own PPE." <laughs> so I, so I, it's I like can't. okay, yeah, oh, no, okay, yeah. No. I'm sure. So the reason why employers are able to be like they're able to act like that is because they know. That if Americans don't want that job, hey, there's plenty of Guatemalans who will take it in a heartbeat. Guatemalan would love to have that They'd job. Gladly work in a septic tank. Yes, yeah, a septic tank cleaning company that's going to pay him $8 an hour. I mean, are you kidding? He couldn't make $8 an hour in Guatemala. That's that's what no benefits. Who cares? He didn't have any benefits in Guatemala. I mean, that's what 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 difference is that? At least with an $8 an hour job, he can afford to buy a nice used car. On a side so, note, can I just say, with employers unironically talking like that, it's no wonder socialism is on the rise in this country. That, that's the thing, and this is the this is the reason why a lot of young people, particularly young white people who don't have employment, who don't have a future, they're in debt from college. Mm-hmm, they're turning to socialism because they look at this country and it's like, well, how can you say this is a great country? I can't even afford to have a decent life. Clearly, capitalism isn't working. They say. Yep, and it's not. The thing is, American capitalism isn't working for Americans. Well, right now, yeah, it's absolutely working not. fantastically for foreigners who want to come exploit American capitalism. For foreigners and the elite and the ultra wealthy, the Wall Street, the big tech companies. It's it's like Victor Davis Hanson said: the left has become an alliance of the uber obscenely rich and the dirtiest of the dirt poor. 
Yeah, so there's no there, – and this is the reason why you see the working class. You would think the working class would get radicalized to the right, but they're just getting radicalized, period. Some of them are getting radicalized to the right. Some of them are getting radicalized to the left. That's why you saw people hop from Bernie Sanders to Trump. Exactly. You know, they just want somebody who's going to look out for their interests. They don't care what your tax policy is. They just want someone who's going to implement policy that's going to allow them to get a job and have a good life. Well, especially because Bernie is more of an actual working class socialist. Again, he and Trump actually shared like a – They aligned almost 100 percent on the issue of trade. They both supported tariffs and protectionism and getting out of free trade deals like the TPP and whatnot. So uh, uh, certainly in more contrast to people like AOC, who obviously is not really supportive of the working class, but her rhetoric makes her sound like she is. So Kit Roth writes, when the Supreme Court effectively revived a cornerstone of Trump era migration policy late last month, it looked like a major defeat for President Biden. After all, Mr. Biden had condemned the policy, which requires asylum seekers to wait in Mexico as, quote unquote, inhumane and suspended it on his first day in office, part of an aggressive push to dismantle former President Donald Trump's harshest immigration policies. But among some Biden officials, the Supreme Court's order was quietly greeted with something other than dismay. Current and former officials said it brought some measure of relief. Before that ruling, Mr. Biden's steps to begin loosening the reins on migration had been quickly followed by a surge of people heading north. Overwhelmed, overwhelmed the southwest border of the United States. Apprehensions of migrants hit a two-decade high in July, a trend that officials fear will continue into the fall. So the concern they have is, is that this is going to overwhelm America's uh, health care system, and this is going to overwhelm America's social safety net system. So the first concern they have is that this is going to overwhelm the country. But um, she writes there's a second worry as well. The ambivalence within certain corners of the Biden administration reflect a broader worry that the border crisis could have electoral repercussions for the Democrats, potentially dooming hopes of pushing through a more significant overhaul of the nation's migrant migration and asylum systems. See, the thing is, when you've got a country this, divide, this divided, if you want to get any policy passed, it's going to pass on a 51 to 49 vote in the Senate, and possibly the vice president will have to break the tie. And they understand that if the needle moves one inch to the right on immigration, it's going to be impossible to pass amnesty for illegal immigrants. They know that that, that if uh, the needle moves one millimeter to the right, it's going to be impossible to get DACA passed permanently for illegal immigrants. And this is what they're concerned about. They know that the optics of this happening all at one time, I mean, it's like, what did they expect? They, you had all of these migrants sitting right on the other side of the border. They had been led to believe that Biden was going to be more humane on immigration than Trump. It's like they didn't expect that these people were going to say, OK, it's, it's our time. Let's go. I mean, it's kind of all at once. Yeah, too. that's the thing. Like not even a gradual trickle like has always been. But see, they, trend. It was, but see, they just what, flooded like a tsunami over the border. But see, this is what they do. They have these I, they have these uh, these noble ideologies, such as we're a nation of immigrants. We're welcome to migrants and refugees. We want to you know, we want to let in the downtrodden, the poor. They're kind of the Statue of Liberty, Statu- socialist as gibberish. They love to make it sound like the Statue of Liberty's of. Uh, inscription is law somehow right right well they they and they definitely treat it as their own personal moral code but they don't think of the ramifications of that they don't think of the natural what, what's going to happen when they do that it's kind of like if somebody really has a heart for the homeless they really feel bad for all these poor mm-hmm. homeless people so they decide you know what i'm going to open up my home to the homeless i'm going to i'm going to let the homeless come in they can sleep on my couch they can sleep on my in the hallway floor i just feel so sorry for the people they, they let in dozens of homeless people what do you think is going to happen they when eventually that get stabbed in their sleep Yes. Maybe half of those homeless people are just really good, decent people who just fell on hard times. But the other half are not. And they're going to find out about that real quick. And Democrats are starting to find out what happens when they put their ideology into practice. Uh, Not only do you get a surge of people coming in, taking up American jobs, but you also push Americans to the right, which makes it impossible for them to pass their immigration agenda. 
They're backed into a corner on the broader immigration agenda. Doris Meissner, the commissioner of the Immigration Naturalization Service from 1993 to 2000, said of the Biden administration, quote, the only tools that are available in the near term are pretty much more enforcement. After coming to office, Mr. Biden not only allowed migrants to apply for asylum in the United States, but he also refused to immediately expel unaccompanied children and moved to freeze deportations. As migrants surged to the border, Republicans attacked the new administration on multiple fronts, forcing the president to retreat from key campaign promises and anger and summon his base. And this is the this is the problem that Democrats have. Their base, particularly young Democrats, they they believe the rhetoric. They believe the rhetoric. They've bought in to the ideology that we're supposed to be a just and humane society. We shouldn't believe in national borders. We're an unjust society or an illegitimate society because there's our ancestors only one were colonizers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's only one human race. Everyone's the same. They've bought into that, and so when they elect a Democrat, they expect that Democrat to implement that ideology into policy. And when he doesn't, they get frustrated. They get angry. They start looking for other options. But when the Democrat does implement that policy, then the working class base of that party, they get angry, they get frustrated, and they start looking for other options. And And unlike these yuppies, unlike these hipster yuppies who really don't have anywhere to go other than the Green Party, these (laughs) folks, these working class people, they do have somewhere to go. They can always vote Republican. Exactly. And this absolutely scares the crap out of the Democratic, at the DNC. Mr. Biden, in turn, leaned on Mexico and Central America to step up their own border enforcement, but the efforts have not meaningfully curbed the flows north, and they have led to violent attacks on migrants by law enforcement in those countries. And again, this angers the NGOs. When when the remaining policy policy took place, when the remaining policy was put into effect, you had Mexico fiercely enforcing their borders, stopping the Guatemalans from moving into their country. Oh, yeah. And, and many times just flat out beaten these migrants who didn't behave in their country. Their southern border is way more secure than ours ever was. Yeah, I remember the. I don't know if you remember this one image, but this is whenever the migrants were trying to charge the border. They were trying to climb over the wall and these Mexican civilians were going and grabbing them, pulling them off the wall and just beating them. Civilians? Yeah, civilians were going, Mexican civilians were going, grabbing off the wall and beating them for number one, being in their country, and number two, trying to cross into the United States illegally. And uh, yeah, so maybe we should hire some of these Mexican civilians <laughs> to do the job that our own government won't do. And this idea that they'll create a new multicultural coalition out of this and a new uh, lower than working class slave labor wage working class out of migrants is j- just further proves it will never work because people, there's this misconception on both sides that, oh, all migrants are just the same. No, the, the Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, El Salvadorians, Mexicans, they, they all don't get along any more than, you know, any – they all don't get along with each other at all. So absolutely that – if you could imagine there certainly would be tension. You could absolutely see gang fights between Nicaraguans and Guatemalans in the streets one day. But the misconception among a lot of American leftists, particularly the academic types, is that people outside of the United States have their views on globalism. They have their views on uh, Native American harmony. Like they, they believe they see Central Americans as this monolith that would like to just completely ab- uh, you know, abandon these colonial borders that were imposed on them by European powers and just go back to live in open tribal societies. And that if you just open up the border, then all these migrants, Mexico is going to open up their borders. They're going to say, "Okay, come on, we're all one big Latin American family. Let's all go flood the United States. But no, Mexico believes in its they they have they believe in their own sovereignty. They guard their borders. They don't want their borders opened up to non-Mexicans. And this is this is a big misconception. And of course, now these NGOs, you'll see them now attacking Lopez Manuel Obrador, the Mexican president, for not letting these migrants through his country. It's like. What did you expect? You expected just because he's Mexican that he's going to say, yeah, we're all one big Latin American family? 
But it just shows the mis, uh, the the disconnect between American um, leftists who believe in this open borders ideology and normal people in other countries, like the people that they allegedly are trying to help. So she goes on, while the administration tried to change the welcoming tone it said early on, dispatching Vice President Kamala Harris to Guatemala to proclaim the border closed in June, migrants and smugglers say the encouraging signals sent, sent at the outset of Mr. Biden's term are all anyone remembers. And so there's this misconception, OK, well, he sent Harris to Guatemala to tell everyone that the border's closed. Don't come to the border. Don't come to America. Well, look, these migrants, they're not going to listen to that. Of course They've not. already they they. They correctly understand to some extent that that's just political theater, that she's just saying that, that the the base of the Democratic Party, the progressive base, doesn't actually support that. And, of course, she got a lot of pushback when she said that. And the signal, the initial signals that Biden sent last year was that America is open. You know, we're, we're ending the racist policies of Donald Trump. We're going to have an open border and you can just, you know, come one, come all. Bring your family, you'll bring all, your cousins, bring your uncles and aunts. You'll all get free health care. He, he and every other Democrat candidate on those debate stage raised their hands. Exactly, asked, yeah. Will you give free, specifically the moderator asked, will you give free health care to illegal aliens? And they all, undocumented immigrants is the term they use. They all raised their hands, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But see, this goes back to the disconnect between their ideology and putting that ideology in, into practice. The average liberal... Yeah, if you talk to them about whether illegals in America should receive health care, they will say yes, they, that illegals should receive health care. But in their mind, they're just thinking of the family on the corner who's who has one or two family members that are here, here illegally. They're thinking of those two individuals receiving free health care. They're not thinking about the magnet that that creates when you create that kind of policy. They're not thinking that you're going to have millions upon millions of people all over the world wanting to come you know, except they come have their free health care. And they bring in all their second and third cousins, you know, Josue and Maria and their extended families, and then they all get health care benefits, right? But see, this is the thing. A lot of people, they look to Canada. They're like, well, let's be like Canada and have free health care. Well, Canada has free health care, but they don't just let anybody and everybody into their country. And furthermore, they have the United States that blocks them from Central America. So exactly. it's much harder for Central Americans to get to Canada and enjoy free Canadian health care than it is to get into the United States and there's, enjoy our benefits. There's a better chance of Russian illegals you know, sneaking their way through Alaska and then into Canada yeah. than there are Central American migrants sneaking all the way through the U.S. to get to Canada. Among the migrants is Marlon Lopez, who fled Honduras with her son in 2019 after facing constant death threats. When she got to Mexico, she said a trafficker handed her to armed men who held her hostage for months. After coming up with the ransom and finally making it to the border, she said she ran into two of her kidnappers in Matamoros and went into hiding, leaving her unable to show up for some of her asylum appointments. Under Mr. Trump, the United States granted asylum to less than 2% of all applicants under the Remain in Mexico policy, according to Syracuse University Clearinghouse, for those that claim that Trump did nothing on immigration. I mean— Less than 2% of those caravans actually got in under Trump after he implemented the Remain in Mexico policy. He brought refugee levels like to the lowest in mm -hmm. our modern history. He did so much on immigration correctly in just four years. Most of the people who were denied asylum missed court dates, like Miss Lopez, who was too terrified to walk around in Matamoros, a city the State Department warns Americans against visiting because of crime and kidnapping. In late August, after the Biden administration said it would reopen some of those cases, Miss Lopez applied to make her claim for protection one more time. Days later, Ms. Lopez received a text message from United Nations representatives assisting her petition. All cases were on pause while they awaited clarity after the Supreme Court decision. She said, they killed all our hope. The Biden government promised many things, and now we feel tricked. <laughs> Think about that for a second. They killed our hope. So the Biden, in her mind, the Biden administration promised that we were going to be allowed into the, into the United States, and now they're saying we can't. 
These people don't understand separation of powers. They don't know <laughs> what the Supreme Court is. They don't know what the president is. They don't know what the Congress is. You, you they mean don't they, know anything about this country, its laws, or its constitution, and they don't care. You mean they don't? You mean to tell me that these immigrants from the third world don't understand Madisonian democracy? <laughs> so color me shocked. The, the Supreme Court rules that they can't come. And she thinks that the Biden administration is changing his mind and saying that they can't come. They're dealing with people. And I've talked to people who have taught in the schools around here to a lot of these kids who came from El Salvador and Guatemala. And they said a lot of these kids can't even speak Spanish properly. They, their education <laughs> level is next to zero. So we're expecting these poor peasants from Central America to come integrate into American society and assimilate. Well, that's what good liberal middle class people are expecting that's not what the elites are expecting that's the their elites utopia are, the elites are expecting these dirt poor peasants from central america to come be their wage slaves mm-hmm. they're expecting to th- be this their is, gardeners clean their toilets yep. this is basically imagine if amazon put in an order for five hundred thousand economic migrants they put in their order they sent their order to the government the government looks at it, okay well we'll let them in we'll send them in we'll, we're we're delivering your order this is basically what happened amazon walmart and all these constru- big construction corporation uh, companies, they just put in an order for more workers, and so they're just they're receiving their goods. It's basically like the uh, vol- modern voluntary slave trade. These corporations they they need workers, they don't want to pay Americans higher wages, and so the government's like, okay, we'll just we'll let in more migrants, and we'll brainwash the American people to believe that we're a nation of immigrants, and that if they oppose this massive influx of foreigners into their country, that they're racist because. We're all immigrants, don't you know? All of us are immigrants. None of us are native to this land. The story also just shows the true arrogance of everyone involved, not only the arrogance of the elites in doing this, you know, spitting in the face of the American citizens, but also the arrogance of these migrants, like how they feel, oh, he killed our hopes, he betrayed us. They feel so entitled. Yeah, entitled to come here. But but you think I don't really blame them as much because this I was gonna is, say, yeah I was gonna say the same thing. This is the image that Americans have have reflected of themselves. This is the way America has sold itself. This is the way our State Department in these countries sells the United States. That we're just a free economic zone. That like again, you can you can flee again. The idea with the refugee is they're fleeing political oppression. They're fearing they're fleeing a government that is cracking down on them because they voted for the wrong party or something or gang violence or whatever. No, now it's just oh, if you just want a better job, if you want slightly higher wages and you want some benefits, eh, just come to America. Mm-hmm. Just come to a new country. Just get because America is just a big open free economic zone now. It's not. A place where you actually focus on the people who are in danger in their home countries. And again, that's a whole topic for another day. But the idea that like, oh, wanting a better job, wanting to get a promotion is a reason to live in the United States illegally. And like that septic tank cleaner employer was uh, pointing out, (laughs) he offers benefits. You might get benefits after a year. So, you know, the average American who can't find work is living on unemployment, looking for something that can actually pay the bills. He's not going to take that. And this is why you have – this is the reason why the, the Republican Party and conservative voters have been completely inept at stopping the flow of immigration. They've been completely inept at ending you know, the, uh, the chain migration policy, the, uh, the visa lottery, and all this stuff that's replacing America – systematically replacing American workers. The reason why they're ineffective is because they, they have been fed this notion – that if Americans would just go to work, then they would prosper. If Americans would just get off their butts and stop eating potato chips and watching TV all day and stop collecting their welfare checks, and we wouldn't have any unemployment. There'd be plenty of jobs for everybody. And then you talk to some of these people, and I'm talking about like 
Trump voters, like Republican voters. You talk to some of these people about immigration, and they'll they'll tell you that the reason why all of these immigrants are taking our jobs is because uh, these immigrants will work and Americans won't work. Where are they getting that notion from? That notion is being fed to them by Republican elites who are funded by big agriculture. They're funded by big business. They're funded by Wall Street. And this is the propaganda that they want to filter down to the masses, that the reason why you see so many immigrants filling jobs is because America, this younger generation, it's these young folks, man, these these millennials, they just won't work. If these millennials would just work, we wouldn't have all these foreigners taking our jobs. It's all the fault of American-born millennials. And then you you split the voters ideologically and nothing ever stops the immigration. And then you get these people believing, well, I don't have a problem. You know, they try to virtue signal. Well, I don't have a problem with immigration. I'm just against illegal immigration. Right. Yeah. That's that was the Republican Party stance for the longest time, going back to like Mitt Romney in 2012. It's like, oh, no, coming here legally is fine. We just, you know, we just want to stop illegal immigration as if those are two. And again, they they're different in some ways, but they both contribute to the same problems. But as the as this New York Times article points out, this is not a winning strategy for Democrats. De- uh, Republicans have Democrats on their heels with this policy. This is why you saw Joe Biden come out and make a forceful statement about the Supreme Court's non-ruling on that Texas abortion case. We haven't heard Joe Biden come out and make a strong statement about this remaining policy, the uh, migration protection uh, protocols. That he hasn't said anything that I'm aware mm-hmm. of. I don't think he said anything about this. He hasn't condemned. I mean, his DHS opposed it in court, but when they lost, it's almost like. Oh, well, that stinks. I guess we yeah, lost. They're not going to appeal oh, it or anything. No, like, that's yeah. their attitude. Oh, well, you win you win some, you lose some. This is the way we just got to implement the law. In fact, uh, Jen Saki, she was asked about this the other day. And again, she said she really she said gave this statement like, well, President Biden strongly and forcefully opposed this policy and called it cruel under the Trump administration. But we're going to follow the law. We're going to follow the court's order. It's kind of like, and sure enough, there are already border officials who are enforcing this policy again and sending them back. Yeah, so because this is ideal for them, they need to be able to throw their hands up and tell their progressive allies, "Sorry, I mean, this is what the court ordered. There's nothing we can do about it. Our hands are tied. We we, we wish we could help. We wish we could let these people in, but we just there's nothing we can do about it." And and they can secretly, you know, enforce the order. Uh, Of course, they got to work with Mexico to make sure Mexico is going to cooperate, not just let these people loose. But but clearly they are capable of fighting what the Supreme Court says, because, you know, with regards to the Texas abortion law, they have said explicitly that they are going to challenge. They are that they at the federal level, the DOJ is going to challenge Texas's law, even though the Supreme Court ruled that it can stay. So they, they can defy the court and pull an Andrew Jackson if they want to. But they're just picking their battles at this point. Yeah. yeah and they, they don't they don't want to because this they understand that this is a killer in the midterms. They understand that Republicans, if, they, if this continues, Republicans will win in a landslide like no republic like it'll be 1994 all over again. I mean, this will make the Tea Party wave look tiny compared to what would come next year if this continued. Well, because the 2010 wave was even bigger than 1994. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, it was. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. But yeah, this would be bigger than the and then the 2010 wave. This would be far bigger. And they understand that immigration is a losing issue. This is something that a lot of liberals actually agree with Republicans on, and they just choose to ignore it because they care about other issues. But you think about the average liberal who wants free health care. He wants a universal health care system. He wants universal. He wants free college education. He wants, uh, you know, he wants roads and bridges paid for with five trillion dollars. He understands the average rational liberal understands he can't have all of those things if this border stays open. He understands that this will tax our tax dollars so strongly. These people are not going to contribute much to the tax base. And most of what they make, they're going to send straight back to their family members at home. They're not going to spend it in this country. This is another myth. 
that these immigrants are going to boost the economy with all their domestic spending. They're not spending a lot of money here. They're sending a lot of that money back. And liberals understand that you can't have universal health care. You can't have universal pre-K and let in millions and millions of migrants. There aren't enough schools for these people. There aren't enough. There isn't enough housing for these people. They don't have any money to pay for housing. That's another thing. They don't have any money. They're next. They're broke. They spent. They gave most of their money. They gave their life savings to the coyotes. So everything they make, they've got to pay to the coyotes. Otherwise, they might end up getting family members' fingers and toes mailed to them. So this is why liberals understand this isn't sustainable. So this is kind of one of those situations where they're like, oh, yeah, Supreme Court said we can't we can't let them in. So that sucks. It's just the way it goes. But the lesson that Republicans need to take away from this is that there is no need to compromise on immigration. Liberals understand this isn't sustainable. They're being pushed from the left to open the border. Republicans need to just sit and wait. They don't need to cave. They need to understand that we have an opportunity to get everything. Even if even if we don't take the House in 2022, even if we don't win the White House in 2024, if we can't put up candidates that are willing to rail against, we need to win the argument that this isn't a nation of immigrants. And we, we need we need to run dozens, hundreds of candidates who have the same stance on immigration as Donald Trump, as Mo Brooks, as Josh Hawley, and these others who are immigration hawks, and we'll call it out, rather than just not say anything or just waffle on it as you know the Gang of Eight types would. But the thing is, we have the opportunity to do this because the Democratic Party is on their heels. They know that they can't defend open borders. And most of the people who voted for Biden genuinely believe that the Democratic Party does not believe in open borders. Republicans and conservatives will accuse them of being pro-open borders, and they viciously oppose that idea. Like, no, we don't believe in open borders. We just believe in a humane and just immigration system. Yeah, those are the key, like the working class voters who went Obama, Trump, Biden, you know, who ultimately voted for Trump once and then went back and said, oh, maybe Biden will deliver for us more than, than Trump would. And those are the people who were just kind of either, you know, misled by the mainstream media to think Biden wouldn't open the border or otherwise, yeah, just believe, oh, he may still look out for us with benefits and whatnot. And he's not delivering on either of those things. So now they realize he's betraying them. The problem that the Republican Party makes a lot of times is once that pendulum starts to swing to the right, they pounce on it and they freeze it in place. And they go so hard that a lot of these voters are like, yeah, I don't I don't know about all this open border stuff. They look at the Republicans are like, "Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I think I can tolerate a little bit of open border. So Rather than pounce on any electoral opportunity, conservatives need to just sit back and wait, and that pendulum will swing, and it'll keep swinging, and it'll keep swinging, because this isn't sustainable. At some point, Biden's going to—the Democrats are going to have to come up with some kind of policy to deal with these millions of people that are trying to get in, and no matter what they come up with, it's going to push millions and millions of Democrats into the Republican Party. So this is the key takeaway from this. The you know we don't conservatives don't have to compromise on immigration. Immigration is the issue that no conservative should compromise. We are not a nation of immigrants. We're a we're a nation state of people. Of you know we have our own native soil. We are native to this country, and we need to drop immig- legal immigration to a trickle until the American workers' the wages can rise and we can get unemployment down to like two three. If we have an unemployment rate of two percent. And the average service worker is making $25 an hour, then we should think about letting in a, f- a, a few more you know, economic immigrants. But until then – Like 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But until then, we need to have net zero immigration. We need to bring our immigration uh, levels down to net zero. And this needs to be the position of the Republican Party. And if, you, if you're a Republican and you're touting this Nikki Haley vision that we're a nation of immigrants, we're, you know, we come from all over the world, we're, we're not a nation of people like other countries. If, if you're voting for that, then 
you know, what's the point? You know, why are you even? You're not going to accomplish anything. You're just going to get George uh, George Bush Jr. 2.0. Immigration very much should still be the issue. And again, in this new era of the Biden regime, there are other issues that also can be used to fire up the base and Republicans should run on like critical race theory, big tech censorship, voter fraud and whatnot. But immigration is still at the end of the day, especially now between the flood at the southern border and the ongoing Afghan refugee crisis. Immigration is still the issue upon which we can win. We can convert voters to our side. And it is the issue that will decide the future of our country, arguably. And that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. And once again, at the time of recording this and by the time this is posted, it will be less than 48 hours before the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, 2001. A generation has passed since then. And it's on a Saturday this year. It, It was on a Tuesday that day 20 years ago. It was a work day. But it's a Saturday this year. Every year we've had to worry about a possible attack. They did it on a September 11, 2012 when they attacked the uh, embassy in Benghazi and killed Americans there. It always is the prime date for them to do it again because they they celebrate that date as we talked about with the Taliban. Certainly stay safe out there, everyone, especially those of you who are in the big cities and reflect on, of course, what happened that day and the historical background leading up to it. But certainly take a look at what has happened over the last 20 years. Look at what has happened in the aftermath of Afghanistan and concurrent with that immigration, both the immigration to our country and, again, the immigration of the the migration of Afghan refugees. And there is intel already proving that terrorist groups in the Middle East are planning on using the southern border as an entry point for just sending their agents right into this country. And none of us would be the wiser with no proper vetting, no paperwork, nothing. Definitely. Take some time to think about how the circumstances that have that led up to 9-11 in the first place in some ways are still here and in some ways are getting worse. And there are reasons for that, but there are things we can do to push back against that, to raise awareness to what is being done by those who don't care about the safety of our country right here in America. The elites who couldn't care less if another 9-11 happened tomorrow because it wouldn't affect them. And hopefully... In another 20 years, when 9-11 is even further in our rearview mirrors than it is now, when people under the age of 30 won't even think twice about it the same way we do, we can hopefully look back in 2041 and say we are much safer against a possible second 9-11 than we were 20 years after it happened. But until then, just take some time to remember what once was, the world we once had before everything changed that day for America and for the world. And that may be a world that was, as some historians refer to it, the 90s, the decade between the fall of the Cold War and the onset of the war on terror with 9-11. They referred to the 90s as a break from history because things were just so nice for the United States back then, at home and abroad. Try to think, as I do, and maintain hope that days like that are indeed still possible. And we can make them possible. We'll talk to you next week, guys.